Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Our life together, the purpose of this church, is rooted in the solid ground of this fundamental truth that Jesus Christ lives. We gather each and every Lord's Day to testify that Jesus Christ, God in flesh, physically conquered death. Well, that's just a myth, actually, many contend. Just a story that Jesus' followers invented. After he died in their grief, they came up with this idea that maybe he wasn't really dead after all. Others argue that Jesus' resurrection is really just figurative, and we need to understand that. The Spirit of Jesus lives on among us in our hearts. It continues to inspire us, and that's really all that was ever intended by the idea. But these proposals fail to explain the radical transformation of Jesus' followers hardly more than 36 hours after his death. Upon his death, they scattered. Upon his death, they cowered in fear and they wallowed in deep grief. Upon his death, Jesus' followers were a defeated, discouraged, distraught lot of people. But in that narrow slice of time between Friday evening to Sunday morning, his followers are transformed into joyful, vibrant, courageous, zealous witnesses for Christ. They speak of His resurrection everywhere that they go. And we're seriously to suppose that this rapid, radical transformation resulted from the disciples inventing a story. Are we really to suppose that their deep grief was transformed into unspeakable joy because they realized suddenly that the memory of Jesus would go on. No, these arguments fail to deal honestly with the immediate context of Christ's resurrection. The change in the disciples and the events as they unfold. But I think as well, and I'd like us to head here today, The opponents of the resurrection also fail to recognize the broader context of Jesus' resurrection. God did not shock His people with Christ's resurrection. Rather, He prepared them for it through many centuries of time. Jesus didn't leave his followers to try to make sense of this thing that has happened to Jesus with no categories for understanding it. Rather, God's written revelation through the centuries continued to prepare his people to understand that as God works out his saving purposes, resurrection is a crucial element in that work. As the master artist, God brushstrokes the theme of resurrection onto the canvas of human history all along the way. So let's travel back in time today, some two millennia prior to Jesus' resurrection, picking up this theme at a very early stage of revelation in Genesis chapter 22. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles. Genesis 22. 
There are a number of important theological themes that emerge from this chapter. We will consider some of those briefly, focusing particularly on this theme of resurrection. In the first verses of Genesis chapter 22, we find that God tests Abraham's faith. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. After these things, God tested Abraham. These things includes particularly God's promise to Abraham regarding his only son Isaac. Sarah, Abraham's wife, was old and infertile. When God made this promise to Abraham, I will make you a great nation. Genesis 12 and verse 2. God repeats this promise to Abraham in Genesis 13 and verse 16. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. For this elderly, infertile couple, will God's promise be fulfilled by Abraham adopting his servant Eliezer? Eliezer may become his heir, and in that sense, adopting him, the offspring will pass on through Eliezer. Is that what God intends? No, God says to Abraham, Genesis 15, 4, your very own son shall be your heir. The Hebrew reads, what comes out of your loins, we might say it, your biological son will become your heir, not an adoptive son. Okay, the question now, will this son be Ishmael, the son Abraham sired through Hagar, his wife's slave, in a horrible event? Maybe that's the son. It is of his loins. It is his biological son, Ishmael. God continues with his revelation, Genesis 17. Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Pretty specific. Your wife next year. She will bear you a son. It's through this son that this promise will be realized. And God reiterates then in Genesis 21, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So as we enter Genesis 22, this is the after these things, after these promises of God through the years to Abraham. In fact, Ishmael has just been led away. So this son now, this only son, this son of Sarah's dead womb, this son of Abraham's old age, on the fair head of this beloved son rests the promise of God to Abraham. I will make of you a great people. After these things, God tests Abraham and says, I want you to offer your son in sacrifice. God's words seem calibrated to swell Abraham's heart with tender emotion and love for his son, your son, your only son, whom you love, Take this son and offer him to me in sacrifice. God's command rips at the tender heart of a, fa of a father. 
And as the narrative unfolds, some of the details have really no other purpose but to accentuate the trauma of Abraham's test. This is a real test. It's not a figurative test. Give your son over to me in my service. It's a real test of taking his life. Verse 2 has three pointed imperatives. Take, go, sacrifice. God's directive is so clear. Isaac is to be sacrificed as a burnt offering. That is, as a sacrifice wholly consumed by fire. The location for the sacrifice, the land of Moriah. For reasons God does not explain, Abraham must make a fairly lengthy journey. Fifty miles in that day. Beersheba to Moriah with a donkey. It's going to be a long journey. Now we stop here and say this is horrifying. And it should horrify us. The idea of child sacrifice, that you would kill a child in worship. Some scholars are so repulsed by this narrative that they claim... Its only purpose is to demonstrate how religious zeal can lead to child abuse. They just seem to completely disregard the fact that God rewards Abraham for taking the life of his son, being willing to do that. I think the key is not to read this text from our day. The key is to read this text from its own context. Abraham spent 75 years of his life, we will remember, in the land of Mesopotamia, where child sacrifice was commonplace. In the land of Canaan, where he now lives, child sacrifice is commonplace. In ecstatic, crazed ceremonies featuring loud music to drown out the screams of children, pagans in Abraham's day sacrificed their children with some regularity. Why on earth would people do that? What would motivate you to do such a thing? It was, in their way of thinking, the ultimate test of one's loyalty to their God. Not everyone did this, but there were certain people in certain situations in which children were sacrificed to prove one's devotion to God, to their God. God hates child sacrifice and later sternly commands the Israelites to have nothing to do with the practice. But we need to come back in Abraham's day for this command to be given to him would not have struck him as strangely as it does us. And in a patriarchal culture, a father had near absolute authority over his children, what he said they would do. As creator and sovereign Lord, God in himself has every right to leave a child on earth or to take that child home. You notice that Abraham never raises an objection. He knows what God is demanding and he determines to obey the Lord. So here's Abraham as he pillows his head that night. He's facing a severe test of faith in God's promises. How will I become a great nation through the son that Sarah bore to me, Isaac, and also take his life. How can I trust the promise of God? To kill Isaac seems to kill God's promise. God's covenant dies with Isaac. We need to think of that clearly. We know where this is headed. And we can read that into Abraham's response here. We we must be careful not to do that. God's covenant dies with Isaac. Really, dies. Secondly, this is a severe test of Abraham's loyalty to God. 
Will Abraham love God more than he loves Isaac? Child idolatry is one of the most severe temptations God's people face. And Abraham is eye to eye with that temptation. There is my love and obedience to God, and there is my love for my son. Will he submit to God's command or put his son ahead of God in his affections? You know, there comes a time for every one of us when trusting and obeying God proves excruciatingly difficult. And that's where Abraham is here. There comes a time when God will call you to do something that makes no sense. Abraham demonstrates the only rational response. We must trust our Heavenly Father's goodness and wisdom and proceed by saying, not my will, but yours be done. If we try to figure God out, and we demand an explanation that everything He asks and every place that He leads and every truth that He gives is something we fully understand. We will put all kinds of idols ahead of God. Severe test of Abraham's faith. How does he respond? We find Abraham obeying God at verse 3. And following. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place of which God had told him. It's hard to believe he slept much at all that night, but Abraham rises early to begin his day of obedience to God. He makes preparations necessary for sacrifice, something that a slave would have typically done. He's a wealthy man with many servants, but he prepares the wood. And he sets out on what had to be an agonizing journey. Verse 4, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw the place from afar. The journey apparently took parts of three days, a full day and parts of two others, meaning that Abraham would have spent two nights with Isaac on the way. By day, Abraham undoubtedly walked and conversed with his son at night. We would assume they ate together around a fire and slept near each other. <clears throat> Did he look differently at Isaac while he ate? Did he listen at night for his breathing? In the still hours, did he weep quietly in his bedroll? How did Abraham filter all of this? Eventually, Abraham spotted the site that God specified for sacrifice. Verse 5, he said to his young men, and notice this carefully, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Abraham has determined that he will obey God and sacrifice Isaac, yet he assures the servants that he and Isaac will return. What is he thinking? 
God has promised Abraham an offspring through Isaac, through this young man. God has called Abraham to kill this young man. Putting that together, there's only one possibility that Abraham can draw, one conclusion, and that is that Isaac will be resurrected from the dead. Whoa, wait a minute. Aren't we reading a little bit into the text here? That's, that's a lot to say, that that's what he's thinking. I and the boy will come back to you. This is a logical deduction from this word of assurance to his servants, and I think an indicator of the resurrection theme very early in Scripture. But we have far more to go on, don't we? Turn to Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 17. Hebrews 11 and verse 17. We have here revelation indicating that there's that there is this very thinking going on in Abraham's mind. Hebrews 11.17 By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. That is Abraham's faith, his trust in God, is what motivates his decision to offer up Isaac. What is he thinking? Verse 18, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. There's the promise of God. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. The boy and I will return to you. God's power was not limited when God gave Isaac life in the womb of his age and infertile mother. And God's power would not be limited in giving the boy life again. Life from the dead if necessary. So as verse 19 continues, from which figuratively, from the dead, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. For all practical purposes, Isaac was received back from the dead. The text may indicate something even further, that this is preparatory for the very theme of resurrection. In the Genesis narrative then, there is a subtle but unmistakable confidence that God has the power to raise the dead. Looking closely, we see that the theme of bodily resurrection is really all over this narrative. So back to Genesis chapter 22. I and the boy will return to you. Verse 6. Genesis 22. Verse 6. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife So they went, both of them, together, trudging up the hill with his father, knowing nothing of his father's intentions. Isaac says, verse 7, to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? The question undoubtedly pierced Abraham's heart. He says, verse 8, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. He'll prepare a sacrifice. And they continue on. We see here the steady faith of a father trusting God from start to finish. 
Abraham's answer probably raised more questions in Isaac's mind than it answered, but he apparently left the matter alone. Verse 9, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. We have no description here of Isaac's orientation, his thinking. But from all indications, he was a man in maturity, a young man. The word boy that is used here can be used of someone that was a good deal older than we would use the term. Undoubtedly, Isaac yielded to his father's will. It's un, un, we can't understand it. We have no categories for this in our own day. But he allowed Abraham to put him on this altar. And the faith of Abraham is proven as he raises his hand to take the life of his son. Verse 10, he reaches out his hand, he takes the knife to slaughter his son. And we know that God hates child sacrifice. The revelation that he gives indicates that in the books to follow. But he then now, at this very moment, responds. God rewards Abraham's obedience. Verse 11, But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. This was not an investigation by which God learned something about Abraham. That's not the point of it. It's a proving of Abraham's faith. It's an evidence for us to understand that faith and to see that faith in practice. As verse 1 makes clear, this is not God investigating something he doesn't know, but is rather a test of Abraham. The point is that Abraham believed that God would do the right thing in the end that he could trust his promises, that he could trust God wholly and absolutely and offer his son. And so God spares Isaac, first of all. Secondly, God provides a sacrifice, verse 13, just as Abraham anticipated. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Note that word. God provided a substitute. Imagine the admixture of joy and gravity as father and son watched crackling flames consume the sizzling flesh of that substitute. Standing there together, worshiping the goodness of God. Verse 14 so Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. Or it could be rendered, the Lord will see. In other words, he will see the trial and he will respond. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. When we get into a place of difficulty and hardship, that's a place where God relishes intervention. So he does here. The emphasis is on divine provision. This is what Abraham had anticipated all along. And we can stop here and give thanks to God that we serve a God who shows up right on time to deliver His people. 
We can trust Him to deliver. Not necessarily the way that we envision it, not necessarily in our own time frame, but God is a God who delivers His people. We can trust Him to do so. He is a present help in time of trouble. Thank God for friends. Thank God for the support of a church that comes around those in need and trial. But in the end, there's only one friend that will never fail us. And that is our God. Only He is absolutely trustworthy. He sees. He provides. He delivers for His people. He spares Isaac. He provides a sacrifice. God now blesses Abraham, verse 15. And I ask, as we go through this text, is this new or old? The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven, probably to distinguish what he's going to say now from Abraham's act of sacrifice. And he said, verse 16, Myself, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Is that new or old? Well, it's both, really, isn't it? I mean, it's a very old promise. This is a promise that we looked at earlier in the sermon. Time after time after time, God has promised this very thing. There's one thing that's new. What is it? Because you have obeyed me. Now, putting this together is important. There's nothing new in the promise. Abraham's faith is here connected, however, to the promise of God for the first time. Abraham displays faith here. And so we learn that our faith and our works go hand in hand, but God's grace always precedes both. Faith and works together, grace preceding them both. So it's the promise of God that sets everything in motion. But as time passes, Abraham's obedience begins to be connected more and more with that promise. Not because it earned the promise, but because it's responsive to the promise. The gracious promise of God in which Abraham placed his trust includes the provision here that all nations of the earth will be blessed through Abraham's offspring. How is that? How does that happen? It's pointing us forward in time. Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac in Genesis 22 points us to the ultimate offspring of Abraham, Jesus Christ. And it is through him that all nations of the earth have been blessed. So visually, let's consider this as we work through this. The linkage between Isaac and Christ is really unmistakable as Revelation develops. We have one and only beloved son, Isaac, belonging to Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ, as God speaks, this is my beloved son in Matthew 3. Both bear wood on their back. Isaac, the wood of sacrifice. Jesus Christ, the wood of the cross. Both journey to Mount Moriah. Both yield to their father's will. Isaac not resisting Abraham 
And Jesus Christ saying in the garden, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Both are sacrificed by their father. Obviously, Abraham only in theory. Christ being literally sacrificed by his father. Why have you forsaken me? A substitute sacrifice. In the first case, with Isaac, the ram that takes the place of Isaac. But in our case, the Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes the place of the sinner. Death cannot be final. Abraham saying to his servants, I and the boy, I and this young man, we will come back to you. And as Acts chapter 2 and verse 24 says, death could not hold him. Couldn't hold him. It was impossible for the author of life to be defeated by death. And resurrection, figuratively speaking for Isaac, it was like coming back from the dead. He was as good as dead for Jesus Christ. It was literal. It was pointing forward to this ultimate victory over death by Christ. So we see that Abraham's faithfulness to God was a pointer to the ultimate faithfulness of God the Father who at ultimate cost did not spare His Son, but offered Him up for us all as a sacrifice for sin in our place. The Lamb of God delivered for our redemption. Unlike Abraham's situation, there was no one to stop the hand of God. Abraham's act of faith merely pointed ahead to the Father's sacrifice of His one and only unique Son. A sacrifice necessary to pay the penalty of our sin. There was no one to stop God's hand because God knew that this was essential to save people from their sin. There had to be a sacrifice for sin for the wages of sin is death if there was to be a gift of God that is eternal life, and justice demanded that sin be punished. And God did not withhold His hand. And Isaac's rescue from death then serves as a faint pointer to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, which completed the achievement of His death in the place of sinners. And so God's promise to bless all nations through Abraham's offspring is realized in Jesus Christ. His promise to bless all nations through this Son is realized here in this place today. We've gathered a long ways from Jerusalem, a long ways from Mount Moriah today on this outpost of the Gospel. But here, people have come to faith in Jesus Christ, crucified and risen and here we have evidence in the life of the church that God's work of redemption is real. It's transformational. Are we right on this? Galatians 3 and verse 8 says, In the Scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, 
preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. When God says that here in Genesis 22, as he said it earlier, in you all nations will be blessed. He has in view us. He has in view Christ and the salvation that's in him. So he preached the gospel beforehand. What he says to Abraham is pointing to the gospel, which is what? The gospel is Jesus' death in the place of sinners to bear the wrath, the anger, and the judgment of God in the place of those who deserved it. You and me. And it is His resurrection power. It is His defeat of death that makes this sacrifice complete and real and gives life to lost people. And I may speak to some here today who say I don't really know much about these things. I can say that I've not come to be a follower of Christ. I don't know what it means to be transformed and changed by this message. Today might be, in some respects, that place where you're called to faith that is very difficult. To turn from your own self-dependence, which may be in part your church, your religious activities, your sense that you know everything for yourself, the life that you want to live, which you know at the core of your being does not please God. And God is saying today, trust me. Really? That this person who lived 2,000 years ago was really God in flesh and died to pay the penalty of my sin and that He'll give me life if I trust Him? Really? Really. This may be the very call of faith that parallels Abraham's call here for you. The wages of sin is death, but in His mercy to us, God poured out the just penalty of our sin upon His Son. Jesus died to free you from the penalty of your sin. The only answer is to put your trust in God's provision. Repenting of your sin, trusting Jesus' death as your salvation from sin and hell and resting in His resurrection life. For those of us who know Christ as Savior, when we consider the joy and humility, the thanksgiving and the reverence of Abraham and Isaac as they watch the ram consumed on the altar, how much more should we celebrate with reverent awe as we stare today into an empty tomb? as we see God's salvation plan, not something invented by His followers to fix up a bad situation, but something that God was doing through the millennia, through the centuries preceding Christ, to prepare us to say it all centers on resurrection. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is life eternal. What joy we can have as we sing, knowing that our substitute who died in our place now 
lives. Does your Savior live today? Or is your Savior going to die with you and go to the grave? Do you worship just the idols of this earth? Or do you worship the living Christ? There's salvation in His name. Trust Him. And as you have, let's sing for joy to the Lord. Father, we bow with thanksgiving. And we say with all of our soul, Christ the Lord is risen today. In this message of life, we have life and we rejoice. Draw to yourself, draw to this gospel message, people who know not Christ as Savior, draw to this gospel message those of us who do. And may we sing with gladness for what you have done. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.